Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Empires of the Future. This is Denton here with Jackson, and uh, we're going to be getting back into our book this week as we've been making our way through Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Uh, we're in book three and looking forward to uh, getting into those chapters. But uh, first of all, Jackson, how are you doing, man? It's been a little while since we've been together. Doing well in a predictable way. I just filled my belly with the same stuff we've been talking about in the previous. Oh, yeah. You got the Frank's Red Hot Chicken? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice. I think you had oh, yeah. some French fries, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was a little better this this time. I had some steamed broccoli. That's all? my lunch. <laughs> yeah. I was kind of in a hurry. I, I happened to be in Walmart, uh-huh. and I was like, oh, I'll just grab some steamed broccoli to... I like it though. That's good. Just just broccoli. Or put some salt on it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's good. All right. I mean, one of those, what is it, like a sixteen ounce bag of steamed Gosh, broccoli. That's so much chewing. That's not that much. What do you mean? I don't know. It's just even. It's soft. I had broccoli twice yesterday, and it's just so much chewing. Of course, I had it uh, uh, from O'Charlie's, and they steam it some, but not so much that it's like. Really, yeah, you know, I like mine pretty mushy. Do you? Okay. Yeah, I do. I don't like it. See, this is getting munchy. worse though. You just ate mushy broccoli for lunch. And it was delicious. That's good. Loved every second of it. Yeah, I, I mean, it's of... it's no Frank's Red Hot <clears throat> Chicken Bites. Yeah, sure. But it's it's still pretty good. Still pretty good. Yeah, cool. Well, now that you all know that we are well rested and have full bellies, <laughs> we can continue on with this podcast uh, and get into into the book. We, you know, we talk every week. We're like, oh yeah, we should be able to get through one or two chapters here today. <laughs> And inevitably, we like run long or don't finish all that we're going to finish. Jackson, before we sat down, was like, yeah, I think we can get through chapters 8 through 12. Mm-hmm. I'm like, mm, okay, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how far we get. Um, I know eight's going to be big. Yeah. Uh, but that's fine. We'll just yeah. see. Yeah, it will be. I mean, maybe for you, but, uh, you know, eight, chapter eight is on pride and I mean, I'm I'm a very humble guy, and so for me, <laughs> so I like, won't have much to say about this because so I'm so much, you skimmed this one. <laughs> yeah, I just had to skim it. I was like, yeah, I'm good on this one. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> like Drax on the on Guardians of the Galaxy, I too am incredibly humble. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, but yeah, chapter eight. So he gets into into pride, and um, if you kind of remember, he he's broken it up into books, uh, and there's books one, two, three, and four. I believe, and there are four. Books total. Yes, yes, so we're trying to finish book three. Yeah, so we're working through book three, which is on Christian behavior. And uh, specifically, he's dealing with pride. Uh, and he has a lot to say about pride. Uh, and I think he speaks about pride in a pretty helpful way. Mm-hmm. He starts off uh, giving a sort of like preliminary defining term, like, okay, here's what pride is uh, kind of thing. And I really like some of the things that he says as by way of introduction into pride. He says... There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. That is a really good description of pride. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, you might be, maybe has never thought about it before, but when you think about pride in these terms, like everyone has it, and it's so easy to see it in other people, right? And he goes on to kind of make the point that people who find it most offensive in other people probably have a lot of it themselves as well. So like if you are extremely off-put by seeing someone who you find to be arrogant, prideful, full of themselves uh, in one way or another, and it just really grinds your gears, really ticks you off, well, that's probably a good sign that you have a great amount of pride that you're dealing with in your own heart as well. Right. He really... 
put such precision on things that can happen that should make you uh, question uh, how much pride is, is affecting you at that moment. And these sorts of things were so helpful to me because pride hides and you, uh, it is multifaceted and we, we train ourselves not to see it in ourselves, but we are so aware of it in others. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he says, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And he uh, talked about this is the essential vice, the, the utmost evil, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. Mm-hmm. And, and pride is the root. And so he says, uh, does this seem to you exaggerated? If so, think it over. I pointed out a moment ago that the more pride one had, the more one disliked pride in others. In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. All right. Explain to me what does he mean when he says, what did you, what did you say, shove your orium? You do this to me all the time, didn't it? It drives me nuts. Oh. I didn't think you knew what it meant to shove your oar in. What? What does it mean? I don't know. <laughs> you wonder in England how much oaring was being done, I, uh, where this, this phrase comes from. Uh, yeah, the fact that it would be like common enough vernacular that he would use it in his book. Right. I'm like, uh, really though, what is he talking about? Do you know? I, I'm putting I only, you on the spot. <laughs> no, not not specifically. I read it as kind of like I, it makes me think about uh, track, like somebody cutting you off when you're running in track. Uh, it's got to be related to that, right? Something like that, I guess. I don't know. In the context, I didn't really care too much because I think I understand what he's talking yeah. about. But you were using your context clues. Way to go, English. Yes, student. sir. Don't I you tried. have a degree in communications or something. Um, you know, I should get one of those. <laughs> I, I think. Once again, yeah, I'm just so good at it. <laughs> People who listen to this podcast are like, no, this guy's not good at communication. But it, yeah, so it really, really good points that he makes about pride, especially it being kind of the root of all sin uh, or you know, the supreme vice, essential uh, vice, I think he calls mm-hmm. it. Um, it I've, I've heard it said before, and I think there's some truth to it, that like, whenever you're dealing with an issue of sin, whatever that sin might be, so and this is... We're largely speaking as Christians here because he does make the point correctly also. Christians are about the only ones that are acknowledging and, and seeing the problem with pride in themselves. Not exclusively, but I think rarely. Certainly Christians are more inclined to see it as an issue and, and want to deal with it and root it out. Um, that do no credit to ourselves because of the Holy Spirit at work, work within us. Um, but um, if you ask the question when you're talking about a sin, if you ask why— like five times, eventually you will get down to pride. Right. Um, an example of this would be if um, if I got into a fight with someone at I don't know my kid's t ball game. That that stuff happens. Yes. Um, and and like I I punch somebody. Well, you get asked, well, why did you punch that person? Well, because they made me mad. Well, why did they make you mad? Well, because what they said was was rude. Well. Why did that bother you so much that you punched him out? Because yeah. it was offensive to me. And, and eventually what you get back to is me, yeah. me, me, me. You know, that, that whatever sin is in your life, it always is going to be rooted back to mm-hmm. yourself and pride. In fact, when you look at the very first sin ever committed by Adam and Eve, when they ate of the fruit that they were not supposed to, to eat, what was, the, what was the root of the problem? It was pride uh, that they were told um, by the, the serpent, by the devil, 
that if you eat this fruit, you will become like God. And that really appealed to them and appealed to them because of their pride. Right. And it was their pride that led them to disobey the uh, one command that the Lord had given them, the one, uh, the, or not really the one command, but the one um, thing that he had forbidden. It caused them to transgress in that mm-hmm. way. Uh, so pride really is at the root of all sin in a very real sense. Mm-hmm. I think so. Right. And so I asked myself in, in thinking about uh, this chapter has spawned in me just so many um, lines of thinking. Uh, as you know, and as I've probably mentioned on here uh, a few times, one of the ways I really process things is just making long word files. <laughs> yeah. So I have long descriptive stuff about pride just because uh, you have to ask a lot of questions if you read the New Testament and you go, okay, well, it's one thing if you notice a certain vice uh, that that is just common greed in certain situations. Greed is common when people don't have things that they want or when there's a lot of stuff to want. But then when you notice that pride can come in what you could call like pagan circumstances or that it can definitely come in religious circumstances, it can happen it can happen across the board, across maturity levels, that it's so dangerous because you can learn what it is and then forget what it is. Uh, so I've asked myself just a lot of different questions about like, how do you watch out for this? Because, uh, it, I mean, there's a basic question, but we have seen people fall out of ministry because of pride. Um, all sin is is dangerous because, I mean, you know, like we talk about hurting people hurt people, but we fall into a lot of things because we think to ourselves, I have an excuse. Here's why I should be able to do what Mm. I feel like doing in this instance. Mm. And pride is something that we're prone to because pride is excessive Mm self-focus. And so when you're hurt, you do look at yourself and you go, ow, you know, I'm hurting. And depending on what you do with that though, God is not blind or in his ear is not uh, deaf to your hurt and your pain. But when you move to this next step of saying, I don't deserve this and I deserve better than this, and I'm the only one who has to go through. You can move to yourself toward pride. And so I was thinking about, I was like, okay, so what does pride feel like? And basically what he says here, he's like, well, it feels superior, and it feels angry when you don't get attention or when someone else does get attention. Mm-hmm. Yep. It feels shirked and shorted, like I'm not getting my due. Yep. It is obsession with your due. Yeah. And what is due to you. And then conversely, what does humility feel like? Strangely, humility is is not just kind of always saying like, hey, by the way, you know, just uh, anything you think I did, I didn't do anything. You know, it is actually having a realistic grasp of who you are, what you have and what you don't have. But also um, he talks about, I think it's just key to bring it up early, whereas he, he brings in later is really kind of a linchpin. He says, look, being humble just means you're actually interested in other people. Mm-hmm. When people are talking, you're thinking about what they're talking about, not what you're going to say next. Right. And that's really key because I, it is easy to lose sight. Since we're so blind to pride and since we can become blinded to it again, it's just really easy to lose sight of what these things are like. Yeah. It also, you know, to a large extent, helps simpl- simplify what humility is. You know, when you think of it in terms of that, like it's, it's taking more of an interest in others than yeah. in yourself yeah. uh, and focusing on that. It's a true thing, you know, when you think about what it's like to be in in group settings and interactions or even in conversation with someone. um, It's actually a pretty hard thing to genuinely take interest in what the other people there are saying, what they're doing and and these kinds of things. Um, But that's what that's sort of what humility is. But it's not like a abstract or 
hard to grasp concept, nor is it unachievable, right? Yeah. We can we can humble ourselves and we can do so in that way. Um, what's interesting, and I think he, he helpfully makes this point as he goes on, is the different sort of faces of pride. Yeah. Because when most people think of pride, I think they think of uh, arrogance, people who are, um, oh, what are some examples? They think of someone like, uh, like great basketball players who are, you know, throw a dunk down and then like flex on yeah, people yeah. or whatever, or, or someone who just, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like an arrogance, mm-hmm. a sort of, uh, you know, we talked about Thor on our podcast once, uh, and kind of his, his hubris, his pride. Um, and that was sort of his, his downfall, if you will, in the, uh, the first Thor movie. That is a sort of pride, a pride of arrogance, of being overtly into yourself and, right. and kind of strutting about in that way. Many times people limit pride to that. And they will do another form of pride. They'll engage in another form or expression of pride, thinking or maybe even deceiving themselves into thinking it's a form of humility. Mm-hmm. And that is like a self-pity kind of pride. Yes. A pride that is, you know, woe is me. Once again, I'm not getting my due. Things are really hard. Mm-hmm. You know, all these kinds of things. And what the, the kind of end result or goal of all these, those types of actions are, are the same as pri- as an arrogant kind of pride. Mm-hmm. It's a it's an attention to me. It's looking at me um, just in a different way. And, right. and getting that attention in a way different from someone who's very arrogant right. in that kind of way. And it, it, I'm glad that he, he brings that up because we can't just let it slide that that's not that that's okay, you know? And I, I've talked about this before. This You'll see it on Facebook. Uh, there are, or I don't know, whatever the kids are on nowadays, the Twitters or, or whatever. You'll see these two different kinds of pride. One is a pride of like, look at me, look how great my yeah. life is, look at all this stuff. Or you'll see the pride of, oh, well, my life is just so hard, just uh, this and that isn't going my way, and kind of a, a, a sort of pity party, if you yeah. will. Yeah. Both are prideful. Both yep. are are wrong. Um, and yeah, it's just, a, another form of the same vice that needs to be called out just as much. Right. And, and social media is a great avenue for both of those forms of the vice yep. uh, of, of pride. Yeah. And I actually had, uh, that down, uh, after this quote here. So I'll go ahead and read this quote. Uh, Later on in the same chapter, he says, uh, quote, the Christians are right. It is pride, which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You might find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. It is enmity, uh, angry separation. Uh, That's that was that was me, the angry separation section. Yeah. I was enmity. I was think is such a funny word that we don't use in everyday life. Yeah. Um, not only enmity, enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. Mm-hmm. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore you know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Yeah. This is sort of the, the I think, the point largely of the book that R.C. Sproul writes, uh, The Holiness of God. Um, and sort of the point he makes, in it, and he's made it in, in other lectures and context, but uh, one of the main problems that we have as human beings is that we don't understand who God is 
and we don't understand who we are. Right. And you will always be in a bad state until you come to that understanding. And the more that you understand who God is, mm-hmm. see his holiness, see his greatness, see his majesty, the more you'll realize how small you are in comparison, yeah. how you are essentially nothing. And that's largely what it means uh, to be a follower of Christ, is to recognize that, uh, to recognize God and his holiness and his righteousness, his justice. And then you begin to realize just the dire straits that we are in as sinful people right. because we've sinned against a God who's holy and righteous right. and just. And that really puts in perspective our situation. And it's only through humility that we can come to that understanding uh, and that we can be brought to the foot of the cross mm-hmm. uh, and find forgiveness and find redemption and find uh, some things he's going to talk about later when he gets into pride. Um so and have and have Christ's, Christ's righteousness applied to us, right? Like that only happens to those who are are humble. It doesn't come to to those who arrogantly think of themselves higher than they ought. You have to understand yourself rightly in relation to God uh, before any of this is going to make sense or be useful to you, right? And it what this is driving you towards, what this drives you towards is like the truth and how things actually are. So for instance, some people, when you say things like, uh, like I said a minute ago, that, uh, that you're interested in other people. So you're telling me that all people are equally interesting and that, no, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that you ask a question, if all people are made by God, then they probably all have something to offer. What do they have to offer? You're not, you're not lying to yourself. That is never the goal to kind of go, all people are equally interesting to me. The, the goal actually changes from how can I get more attention? How can I leverage every situation to get myself centered in it and to draw back to myself all the positive comments that you actually look at situations and go, how can God be glorified in it? How can good be done? How can truth be found? How can, how can we have a kind of beautiful connection between us rather than kind of twisting situations to go, how can we talk more about my achievements and more about how funny I am? Or Because uh, it does even come down to sometimes, uh, sometimes our senses of humor might be, we might be kind of gearing things to go like, hey man, this is, other people are getting a little too much. Att- I need to tell some more jokes to make sure oh, that yeah. everybody remembers that I'm, I'm oh, alive yeah. at the party here. Um, but that's all. This is just under the Lordship of Christ, you figure out where you're at on these sort of things. But we can live with wrong goals, and pride drives our wrong goals. Uh, we, tr- if we are walking around trying to go, how can I get more for me out of every situation? God is not out there trying to keep everything from you. In fact, every day He wakes up, or, or when you wake up, He looks at you and He goes, "Yeah, I love you. I want you to have good things. I'll bring them to you. Don't yeah. don't worry. You don't have to claw for every good thing." I care for you. I mean, this is Jesus is saying this kind of stuff over and over about consider consider the lilies of the field. They're not out there cutting all the other grass and everything else off. Going, hey, everybody, remember, I'm a lily, and lilies are the best. That's not how it is. Uh, but meanwhile, we're some weird sort of creation who feels that we have to walk around, kind of going, hey, I know you might think there's some other interesting people out there, but nobody like me. Yeah, uh, it's weird. Yeah. It is weird, and that's something that. The New Testament can do for you, in particular, that the Holy Spirit can do for you is kind of go, wow, this is weird. It is weird that I'm in some weird uh, uh, competitive race with other people, kind of like, oh, you think you're great? Well, let me tell you some things that I've done. 
You think you can tell funny jokes? Well, I can tell just funny jokes. I can probably tell better jokes than you. Like this weird competitive thing that comes up that we don't have to do that. Yeah. But it does, it is a rat race that's out there going on yeah. all the time. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, he, he talks about pride as a, as a uh, spiritual cancer. Yep. And that's the next quote yeah. I have. So kind go of, ahead. Kind of how destructive it is. Um, well, he talks about it in, in a sort of sense of um, kind of getting back to what we've already talked about. It's sort of essential. It, it's it being a sort of essential sin. Um, but it is something that as you've already kind of expressed that we've already kind of talked about, it infiltrates and, and gets into every part of our lives and destroys sort of everything it touches. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, I'm kind of getting at largely too, like what it means to be a human and to be depraved, you know, Mm -hmm. a part of our total depravity is that we are, we have this sort of rot inside of us, uh, that needs to be dealt with. And the only way for it to be dealt with is, is by God who can begin to root it out. Of our heart, of our lives. Right, and that's um, the cancer thing. Every yeah. part of you has been affected, and and that's bad enough. But if you don't learn and you don't accept the healing for this disease, it will spread to every other good thing in your life. That is the cancer, and that is and that is the literally spiritually scary part about pride, is if you are not actively fighting it, then it is actively destroying you. And will act, will have its way in the end, and, and you will be destroyed if... Yep. If you leave it untreated, like any cancer, mm-hmm. right? Like any cancer will ultimately destroy, will ultimately lead to death. Um, and it destroys everything in its wake too, you know? Like it has effects on everything, including even relationships. There's there's nothing more destructive to a relationship than pride. Yeah, there's nothing more destructive to a marriage than pride. There's nothing yep. more destructive to a friendship than yep. pride. There's nothing more destructive to a parent-child relationship than pride. I mean, we could go on about this and to some degree— we should because if you don't think if you don't see this then it is eating away at your relationships the things that you've already mentioned arrogance uh, i ran into i was looking into this and i know we've mentioned this uh lately but this this interesting book from the 1800s when they had these ridiculous long titles about the various <laughs> meanings of words considered um but arrogance is uh is outward enmity and and separation towards others because of the excessive focus on self so it's different from basic pride pride is the focus on self uh, vanity is a a very uh surfacey focus on external attributes mm-hmm. but pride pure spiritual pride think about how it's different from vanity because because vanity you you've all seen uh Compared to real pride, vanity is kind of cute because somebody get their feelings hurt when people look at them and they kind of go, well, you know, we'll, we'll talk about you some other time. Oh, I wish I was going to get attention. And then this person's walking away going, well, I'm the one who really deserves the attention here. You know, that that's pride is, is the telling yourself that I, I, you know, I'm the one who really deserves. And that's where the self-pity thing like you were talking about. If you're sort of coaching yourself, th- quote, through pride by telling well, if, if everybody knew, knew how good I really am at things, then I would be the one who is, who is class president and right. who is getting the girlfriend or who is getting whatever your heart wants. And that's, again, that's the danger of pride is trying to find some other way to say, I have value, I'm good, I can do this without God. 
And these ways that you think you might be doing it, coaching yourself that, well, you're better. They finally knew. It's a new disease you're introducing to yourself right. that is going to destroy right. all the things you think you're getting. Right. Because you're trying to find your value right. and things like that in yourself. You know, we have value as human beings. Right. God tells us that we're created in his image. Um, but the problem with, with what you're describing is that that spotlight of your attention is continually turned on yourself mm-hmm. to where even in your attempt to overcome feelings of pride or, or not getting the attention you want or whatever, you do so by giving, by more pride, mm-hmm. by saying, if only I, if only yeah. I, or if only, you know, they knew how cool I actually am or how right. nice I actually am or whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, because it, it can go to things like, well, I'm the one who's really compassionate. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm the one who really listens to people when they talk. I'm the one who really cares about people. And it is coaching that you're bringing yourself up and simultaneously lowering others down. Whatever. I mean, this is what's so toxic about pride is whatever you value, you can then convince yourself that you have more of it, that only people would notice it about you, that you can coach yourself to elevate yourself. Yeah. And that's pride. Or even when it comes to vanity, you know, like you can, you can view people who maybe do more outwardly express a sense of vanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can view them almost as lesser than by saying, you know, I just, I'm just over that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I'm the kind of person who doesn't get caught up in such things. You, you yeah. see this all the time. People will say oh, like, yeah. I'm not into X, Y, Z popular thing because I'm just not the kind of person who gets it. not like everybody else who gets into this strange American thing. In, there are American forms of yeah. pride. Oh, I'm an individual. I, I'm not, I don't follow crowds like that. And it's like, oh gosh, stop. Yeah. They're called hipsters. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, it, it, we are vulnerable to this. And at this point, um, I do have some feeling like we've maybe turned a corner because you kind of go, my goodness, it's everywhere. How do we, how do we get free of it? Well, one, the work has been done, but two, stop trying to prove yourself. Right. Accept that, that God made you, values you. You don't have to do the work every day of making sure you get all the attention. Right. It's a change of mind to see what God is doing. And, and yes, to be open to go, maybe Different situations are about somebody else, right. and that's fine. Right. I don't have to manipulate situations. It is sort of a, uh, it's, it's a spiritual feeling to let to, to kind of live with more of an open hand rather than grasping and trying to control situations. Um, because yes, pride can come up in a lot of ways. But in a, I would say too, uh, just by the grace of God, we we do if we're honest. Uh, one, we only get insight into this through the work of the Holy Spirit. But then, two, when we do get that insight, uh, we know a lot of the time what needs to be done. And then it's and it's sort of like a muscle. Little by little, um, you learn. And, and then you need people in your life who can call you on it, who can talk to you about, you know, who can you can walk through and help them uh, as they have prideful struggles. I mean, it, it is one of the things that we have to have the church for to yeah. say, hey, that right there, you know. That wasn't a good moment. Yeah. You're right. That is one of the things we need the church for. I'm always a fan of, you know, bringing it back to, hey, this is part of the importance of the church. Um, But it's also one of the most difficult things in the Mm -hmm. church to have to um, try and, like, call someone to repentance who's dealing with pride, who's being prideful in a certain way. Because 
we know what it's like whenever we get called out on that. Yeah. You know, even as believers, and and we might wish that because we're filled with the Holy Spirit, that when someone confronts us about our pride, we just immediately go, "Oh my goodness, you're so right, man! Thank you so much for calling me out on that pride." That's not the way it works, and we know it's not the right. way it works. It's not that right. easy, but it's the hard work that we're called to do, and it's the hard work that we're called to allow others to do mm-hmm. in us and with us. And when you hear someone address you on your, on your pride, what is some of the immediate reaction? You begin to immediately go, it's one of the first times you begin to turn to other people and you go, well, you do this or yes. you do that or whatever. It's instinctively where we want to go. And again, yeah. what are we doing? We're comparing ourselves to one another right. and, and we're, we're looking for the worst even in that person as they yeah. are uh, doing what God has called the church to do for one another. Mm-hmm. It's a hard thing. He does talk a little bit about, um, if you don't mind me shifting gears just a smidge, oh, yeah. still within pride, but I think it was helpful. He, he talks about what pride is not, not to be confused by certain things. So like he says, uh, oh, yeah, that's pleasure helpful. in being praised is not necessarily pride. Right. Like if someone says, hey, uh, you did a great job on that project. If that brings you a certain amount of pleasure or joy to be told that, yep. that's not pride. Right. Like that's, no, that's just you being grateful for kindness showed by someone else and a, right and, a compliment and this, being given. this weird uh man one thing that i have seen over the years and i'm sure you and i have talked about before is these weird sort of christian substitutes like these christian um sort of like fake virtues that we sometimes do like yeah. you've you've had people who what, what you're doing if, if they say hey you did a good job on that project you did a good job singing that song you did a good job when you spoke in church or any of these things that we do and somebody says that was a good job and then this person goes no no it wasn't like all, literally almost yeah. arguing with you yeah. which which puts this no no you really really did no 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 i mean i've literally seen people arguing like this. yeah yeah what you do when somebody says to you you did a good job you look them in the eye you smile and you say thank you because you can genuinely appreciate that god in yeah. that moment is not looking at you going you better not take that compliment no i mean and c.s lewis does a great job of saying we are made to appreciate one another and when somebody appreciates you accept it this is one thing if we're at a faith like children there's nothing like a child when you tell them they did a good job on something they go really i did Oh, wow, great, thank you. You know, oh, yeah. they love it. Oh, and, they do. And that's fine. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> and besides that, what are you doing to that person when you when you argue back with them? When you when they come and say, Hey, right. you, you know, or, or you know, even even something like you see in movies or whatever, someone says, Oh, that's a that's a pretty dress you're wearing, and the lady goes, Oh, this whole thing, I, yeah. I just <laughs> threw it on, you know. And that's kind of a similar thing when someone gives you a compliment and you say, No, 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 I didn't, no, I didn't right. do it. Well, they don't enjoy that when you do that. No one right. enjoys to, oh, I gave you a compliment and you just kind of argued with me. Well, all right, I guess I won't give compliments anymore. You know, right. it's a deterrent to showing kindness and encouraging one another. Yeah. Uh, don't yeah. be a deterrent to encouragement, right? You know, out of a false humility. Yeah. You're exactly right. Say thank you. That's a good thing. Um, yeah. And then the other one. Yeah. 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 The, the other one he, he talks about is like um, being proud. So, for example, as a father. Yeah. Um, there are moments when I'm very proud of my son. Uh, so he, he play he started playing t-ball. It's been exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and his first at bat got up there and, you know, you watch other, you know, that's sort of, I'm sort of comparing him to other kids. I hate to say that. <laughs> I am a little bit, but, uh, not that other kids are bad, but you see kids naturally, this is their first time ever playing yeah. t-ball. It's sometimes really hard to just hit that ball off yeah. the tee. It seems easy to us as adults, but for them, this is brand new. And it's a struggle for some of them. So when my son gets up there and very first swing, boom, puts it into play, 
man, I was kind of proud. Yeah. Man, that was that was great. There's yeah. a joy being expressed in my in my heart at my son and his accomplishments and uh, just seeing him out there playing T ball. Mm-hmm. That's not a sin. It's not a sin to be uh, to enjoy seeing my son succeed or or to to being proud of of a um, even like a painting. If you're if you're into art and you paint a picture and you look at it and you're proud of the way it looks, mm-hmm. that's a different thing than the kind of sinful pride that we're talking yeah. about. Now, if you begin to look at it, put it next to Pablo Picasso and say, yeah, Picasso ain't got nothing on me. Yeah. Well, okay, you've, you've entered into a right. new domain. When you move to the next step of yeah. comparison, if you can live at that level of sort of, um, you know, with your son, I think a lot of times what you're doing is saying, I'm glad what you're becoming. Yeah. And I want you to know that at this moment, I, I am I'm happy uh, with what you are doing and the path that you are taking. Um, warm-hearted admiration is the phrase that uh, C.S. Lewis yeah. uses there. And so in, in that context, uh, th- these are just, again, what we're after here is reality, yeah. not some sort of like painted over kind of uh, fake Christianized, uh, well, this is, well, I'm being moral here, so let me, no, no, no. Uh, and, and, and that's what's so tough about this and why you have to be, like in the process of training yourself because we can always, our hearts are such that we like to justify ourselves. We like to, we like to position ourselves in such ways to go like, let me just handle this. My, let, me, let me just get this for myself. Even if we've been trained in this, we learned this stuff. We know pride is bad for us. Uh, we, we, we can in an instant go from what is healthy, which is someone gives you a compliment and you mm-hmm. say thank you to this next step of, oh, I, that guy said that I did better than anybody else who preaches in this church. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> I wonder if he really means that because I might be it. Like, no, 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 the, yeah. the comparison game. We're not into yeah, that. Not good. We don't know. You can move to that so easily. Oh, yeah. And your heart, if you're not checking your own heart and questioning your own heart, your heart will move there, and all of a sudden you can just start down that path in, in every area, and that's the danger. Pride is always, uh, that, I mean, it, this language is no joke where we started this chapter talking about how this is the sin that we believe drove the devil and still drives the devil, this essentially competitive, I am not getting my due. Yep. And maybe, I, maybe with just a little push, I could get more of my due. Yeah. And our, our sinful natures want to drive us that way, too. You know, they want to incline us in that way. And all of our accomplishments and all of our, um, you know, feelings of, of warm-heartedness and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So, so be aware of that. Uh, but it is it's a real thing. It's, it's easy to see how it is the sort of essential vice. Yeah, kind of. one more thing I would say about this, because I think we're about ready to leave uh, this. Just this, and just another word of caution. It's just related to one that we mentioned earlier. He, he just makes this point that, Sometimes we, we coach ourselves in pride, you know, for instance, that uh, we got to overcome. I, I don't want to be a coward because that's beneath my dignity. No, you don't want to be a, a coward because God made you right. for his purposes. Uh, it, it, viewing things as beneath your dignity, uh, whether, whatever, whether it's lust or whether it's, it's anger, or I, don't, I, I, I look stupid there. And I'm not the kind of person who can ever look stupid. Yeah. Uh, that's pride talking. 
and we can there is so there are so many forms where we can coach ourselves in this way and and frankly we coach ourselves other people will say things like this and that's part of the danger of what's going on with all of us is where where we say things to each other and some of the stuff our heart just goes you know that sounds pretty good yeah. you're right i can't be i can't be looking stupid like that mm-hmm. uh, just be careful Yep. Be careful the advice that you're taking. Be careful the example that you're following and question those sort of things. Yep, that's right. That's right. Well, that was chapter eight. Chapter nine, he moves uh, on from pride into charity. Uh, so, Jackson, I've got to ask you, how much are you giving to charity right now? Because that's, <laughs> that's definitely what he's talking about in this chapter, right? What an unfortunate thing. This definitely is the first book to ever <laughs> show me that, like, oh, charity is, like, more than alms giving to the poor. I was like, oh, yeah, alms is giving to the poor. Charity. Because it is sort of the counterpart to the error that we've fallen into by uh, reducing love to feelings especially romantic mm-hmm. feelings mm-hmm. when this broader english word charity uh used to mean a lot more than alms or giving to the poor um in fact uh charity is the ability to treat people with respect even if we don't like them yeah that's way harder than <laughs> than just giving of alms yes um especially for certain people you know giving alms giving of you know giving to the needy uh, giving to to meet the needs of other people is can be a really hard thing for some people, especially if you don't have all that much money, mm-hmm. right? Um, but being willing to show kindness and compassion towards those who you would really rather not is hard for everybody, yeah. <laughs> absolutely everybody. And it does get at a deeper virtue than just uh, what we oftentimes think of when we hear the word charity. And so I'm kind of thankful that he uses the word charity here rather than love to give these sort of explanations and to also help outline what it is that that is encompassed whenever the word in scripture that we oftentimes see translated as love right. but used to be translated as charity right. uh, what is actually encompassed in that mm-hmm. uh, because when you when you read like in say for example 1 Corinthians 13 uh, the chapter on love we all read that nowadays in our culture and our society and we you know here love is patient love is kind love does not envy or boast it doesn't insist on its own way all these things um and we are oftentimes thinking about well a first of all we're thinking about a husband and wife because we see that scripture referenced most of all in the context of of a marriage or wedding uh, ceremony well that's not the context in which it was originally written that doesn't mean it's not valid in that situation but this was originally written by the apostle paul to the church he's telling the church each and every one of you in the church love one another in this way this is what your relationship to one another ought to look like uh but the word love there uh was originally i think in the king james right um i haven't read it in the king james in a while but it was originally translated as charity Mm -hmm. and so c.s lewis uses that word here to describe what exactly he's talking about uh when when we see in the scripture, uh, the most important of these is faith, hope, and love or charity. Right. Uh, that there is also, besides just emotional feelings involved, like you said, there is action involved. There is a will involved in this kind of love. And to reduce love simply down to how we feel in any given moment um, or any given point in our lives towards another person or towards a group or, or whatever, towards others that is not a full picture of what 
actually the Bible is talking about when yeah. it talks about love or charity. Yeah, here is a point where um, he offers what I think is one of the most practical insights on how you treat people and how to deal with the fact that you don't always feel loving towards people. One of these things that uh, I've talked about this in premarital counseling, I've just talked about this in so many situations, that he says, stop asking yourself so many questions about whether you feel how much love you feel towards certain people. He says, behave in a loving manner and you will be amazed at how the feelings will follow Mm -hmm. at their own pace, but they will follow. And he's talked about this in, in certain sections before, but it's so helpful in, uh, talking about it in terms of charity because when we spend so much time uh it's like we're on this weird treasure hunt like the western the trend in western culture for the last hundred years is like what do i do about my feelings where could i find them if they go somewhere where are they yeah we're just asking the exact wrong question because the loving feelings follow the loving actions, the genuine loving actions. And one of the scary things about uh, the 20th century um, is things like, uh, if you ask questions about how could uh, people who worked at Nazi death camps kill all these people? Well, what they invariably did is they convinced themselves, well, these people deserved it for X, Y, or Z reason, because mm-hmm. they're a lower form of life or because they took money from other people uh, because they're evil. Because th- th- one of the scary things about us as humans is we'll convince ourselves, I'm good. Mm-hmm. Whatever I'm doing, I have to convince myself that I'm good. And so if you're going to do those sort of actions, you're going to have to convince yourself these people are deserving of these sorts of things for these reasons. And so the opposite is also true, that if you treat people a certain way, your feelings of hatred will accompany those actions. Yeah. Because, again, this is the way pride works on us to say to us, well, whatever happened in here, you're good. Yeah. And so if you did that, got to be a good reason for it. Um, but here in the inverse, charitable actions, loving actions will lead to loving feelings. And yeah. so what a, it's incredible. I mean, because it's literally I, anybody who's not tried this, I just put it to work. This is a shocking, amazing thing that you will find if there are people that you see on a regular basis, you go, I don't like them and I don't have any positive feelings toward them whatsoever. You're not expected to. You don't have to go further down. I'm not, the Christian view of the world does not ask you to plumb the depths of your heart to go, I got to find some kind of positive feelings if I'm going to do something good for them. No, you right. don't. Right. I mean, I'm talking, if you, somebody you see at work, just take them a little Debbie cake, like do something small and watch as time goes on. And, and even if it's small things, whatever you can manage, positive feelings follow those respectful actions. Yeah. It is, it's very surprising because we're just deaf to it. We're, we have forgotten this sort of thing. It's like lore. I mean, it's like ancient wisdom that yeah. we just kind of went, no, surely not. Surely it can't work that way. Surely it's not so straightforward as that. Yeah, it actually is. Yeah. We just don't want to hear it. Right. <clears throat> That's exactly right. Um, it, so it, that is kind of the idea behind when you're married, and you talked about this in pre yes. counseling, um, 
whether you feel like it or not, whether you want to or not, give your husband, give your wife a kiss goodnight. Yep. E- even if you're not very happy with them at that moment. Um, if if you're about to leave and, you know, some people are, are maybe less affectionate by nature and that's just a part of their marriage. Yeah, but yeah. if normally before you leave one another, you give each other a kiss and you say, I love you. Guess what? Even if you are bitter, if you're upset, if you're angry, you give the kiss and you say, I love you. Yeah. Uh, because that fosters that love, that fosters that affection. Mm-hmm. Lo- Pastor Davis is someone who said this all the time um, here, here at First Southern. Uh, is some, someone who I heard say this a lot in his preaching and as he would teach the Bible, and that is the fact that love is first and foremost an act of the will. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that emotions are completely disconnected or irrelevant or play no role in our lives or even um, when it comes to, to love or affection, especially between husband and wife. But it is an act of the will, and we can know this simply by the fact that the Lord commands us to love. Mm-hmm. He commands us to love one another. Husbands, love your wives. He says to love your enemies. He says love is a command. It is mm-hmm. it is given to us as a command, and therefore it must be something that we can engage our will in. Mm-hmm. And it is. And, and if you think of it purely as an emotion, you won't understand that. But when you begin to think of it in terms of C.S. Lewis is talking about here in acting towards another person, then you begin to see how it is possible and what true Christian love is and what it looks like. And uh, we unfortunately attach it a great amount to our feelings, mm-hmm. uh, to a, a negative degree, to the point that we can even uh, think, as Christians, we can think of God's love in these terms as well. Yeah. That when we have behaved and we've acted poorly, when we've sinned against Him, we can begin to think, right, that the Lord's love for us is somehow going to be gone or going to be done away with or or lessened because of how we have acted. There's no way... We would ever, if we were in his position, love, have affectionate feelings towards someone like us. So therefore, we think there's no way he possibly could. But guess what? His love towards us is not dependent upon how well we've done. Yeah. Um, and obviously, God's God's emotions are going. He does He does have emotions, but they are different than than ours in the sense of um, they are perfect and without the impact of sin and and all these kinds of things. But God's love for us is not based on anything that we have done in order to perform, yeah. and therefore we shouldn't think of it in those terms. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's just one more little thing about about love, and when we view it wrongly, even the implications it can have on how we view God when we begin mm-hmm. to apply our understandings of love being purely emotional to Him. Right. I mean, th- this changes. I would just challenge anyone to read the Bible in these terms so that when you think of a, a verse that says uh, G- God shows his love for us in this mm-hmm. while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that mm-hmm. this is not we often in our own mindset kind of go, oh, look at those positive feelings he had. No, look at those actions that yeah. prove his love that does have those feelings in the train, but the actions have been done because God loves you. Whatever attitude you have while we were his enemies, right? His love is before those actions, and it actually, he loves you wherever you find yourself, whatever yeah. attitude you have towards him. And that's where he is. So does that affect you in a different way then? it's a, You're not expected to prove, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. Right. Again, this, this, is, this is life-changing. This is the reason that you don't have to go into situations just like looking for the way to prove yourself. 
You don't have to prove anything to anybody. This it's it's all been done. You you have value. God is the one who gives out value, and He's already looked at you and said, "Yeah, I love you. I made you, <laughs> yeah. and I haven't given up on you." Yeah. So it's there, and, and that's um, it's just really powerful. It is it is a fundamentally different way to live. Yeah, it's an act of the will. It's great. Uh, so then we get to that. So that's chapter nine, and there's more. Obviously, yep. we just breezed through a whole chapter on love. Well, guess what? There's more to be said about love, but uh, but just uh, for the sake of the podcast, we're going to move on to. Uh, chapter 10, which he talks about hope. And this is a really great chapter where he, he offers some clarifying things about hope. Uh, first of all, one of, the, one of the first clarifying things he needs to, uh, to give is, is that hope is not just a, a uh, oh, escapism. It's not, right. it's not uh, looking to something in spite of all the reality around us, but it is looking to something that we long for, that we, that we uh, can cling to, that we can hold on to, um, something that is true, especially of believers, and that we're called to hope, we're called to long for that which which is ours. He, um, speaking of hope, he says it is um, since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And what he's talking about when he, when he says this, he says the reason that Christians, by and large, not not exclusively, but uh, can become ineffective in this world is that we become ineffective in this world when we begin to focus on this world, not on the right. next world that is to come. And he says those who, as Christians, those who focus most and have the most hope looking to what is to come, to the next world, the, uh, the new heavens and the new earth that is going to be ours uh, one day, it's those who are focused most on that, on what is to come, that have the greatest impact and the greatest mm-hmm. effect here and now on the earth as, as we live. Uh, which is kind of a mind-blowing thing, but true when you begin to look at it in practice. Even consider the apostles in the book of Acts. Uh, they were the most set on and had their uh, their hope most fixed on that which was to come uh, as they had seen their Savior ascend and, and were given the promise that he would one day return as he had gone away. And it was this hope and what was to come that drove them to just... Uh, fervently and with a with a vengeance proclaim the gospel to the world around them in spite of all the opposition and and do so in a way that was um, that was gracious that was humble that was all that it should be um, and hey, they had the greatest impact because of their focus on the world that was to come this is what hope is mm-hmm. and also this is what hope produces and what uh, what hope brings um, he talks about there's another thing that he says, um, the Christian understanding of hope. So he lays out a few understandings of hope that are um, that are not ideal. There's the fool's way. Um, that's the person that um, that puts the. He's, I'll just quote it so I don't mess up. So there's the fool's way of going about things. He puts blame on the things themselves. He goes on all his life thinking that if only he had tried another woman or went. Uh, for a more expensive holiday or whatever it is, then this time he would really catch the mysterious something we are all after. Um, this is the problem when people put hope in things of this world. They put their hope in in their uh, spouse or in their uh, vacation, that, that these things will bring them joy, that will bring them satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And the fool's way of sort of reacting to these things, when inevitably they don't bring the satisfaction we're longing for. They don't satisfy our our deepest desires. The fool's way is to say, well, I just don't have the right one yet. 
I just need to try a different woman. I just need a, a different vacation. I just need uh, better food. You know, what, whatever these things might be, a bigger house. And that is a, that's a fool's errand yep. that will always prove fruitless. Um, and that's, that's the fool's way. But he goes on to talk about another way, um, which in a sense is, is perhaps better, but still not the right way. And that, that's the, the way of the disillusioned, sensible man. Uh, he soon uh-huh. decides that the whole thing was moonshine. Of course, he says, one feels like that when one is young. But by the time you get to my age, you've given up chasing the rainbow's end. And he settles down and learns not to expect too much and represses the part of himself which used to, as he would say, cry to the, cry for the moon. And he says, this is, of course, much better way than the first and makes a man much happier and less a nuisance to society. So in that sense, he's saying it's a, it's a better way than the fool's errand. But he says it tends to make him a prig. He is apt to be rather superior towards oh, yeah. what he calls adolescence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the, role, on the whole, he rubs along fairly comfortably. Uh, so this is, okay, maybe this is a better way, but it's still the wrong way to right. say, well, I've given up on trying to have my deepest desire, uh, desires satisfied. There's, it just can't happen, right? So I'm just going to live as, as I am and, and not worry about being satisfied. Well, C.S. Lewis says, okay, that might be better in a sense, but that's still pretty sad, right? To hear someone that's just decided that there are um, nothing will satisfy. Right. There is no such thing as satisfaction. And man, I feel like we're right on the verge in uh, in like intellectual history. The, these are the Stoics who come yeah. along and say, "Well, your problem is that you think there's something out there at all that's deeper or higher that would actually satisfy you. Take what you get. Don't want too much, and stop with these lame-brained ideas that there is something truly fulfilled. There's no such thing as fulfillment. Right. There's just people getting stuff. And so uh, what's interesting is where we are right now is I do sense some sort of a turn from kind of Epicureanism, this sort of like I've tried all of these pleasures and I don't know if – I guess none of those things will make me happy. And then there's this turn to sort of, well, the answer is to to just be tough and to realize – there's no such thing as satisfaction that everybody out there is just unsatisfied and give up on all those ideas that, Mm -hmm. that there's something deeper, that there's something higher. There's not. And that's, and that's the manly way to face it. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, I, I do, I want, I, you don't know, cause I, I definitely, I think it's an undercurrent still right now, this sort of, sort of attitude that like, well, uh, there's those naive people who think that there is really something out there. Uh, it takes guts to ask if there really is or not. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not mad at the question of if there really is fulfillment. Right. Uh, it's a very reasonable question. Yeah. Uh, and and I think C.S. Lewis's order is a, is a good order because it is it's sort of the first impulse that comes to us, usually as a child, is like, wow, you know, Larry, it's all right here. This this candy is the best thing I'll ever eat in my whole life, you know? <laughs> uh, I mean, that's a part of what it is to be a kid, you know? It's just like, this thing, this is amazing. How yeah. have you all forgotten that this is probably the best that it'll ever be? You know, and like, I, uh, probably not. Um, yeah. <laughs> but then you, there is this sort of, I'll move on to this next attitude, but uh, it is a danger to forget what, what we do believe, that, look, there is genuine fulfillment out there. That's exactly right. And he that's the next point he gets to. So this is the Christian way. And he makes the point that for every desire that we have 
there is a a fulfillment to that desire. Uh, he says when it comes to uh, babies who are born with a desire uh, to eat, well, guess what? There's such a thing as food. He said a duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Here comes the answer to the question. Yes, there is an answer. There is a, a, uh, an, uh, there is something that can satisfy your deepest desires. There is a true satisfaction that's available. The problem is you're looking for that satisfaction in this world. But that's a set, that's a desire that can't be it points met. out of this world. Yeah, your that's desire exactly there points right. out of this world. That's exactly right. And just just look across the history of of humans and see that that is the case. I mean, you know, you you hate to think about this fact, but like the rate of depression yep. and despair yep. and and things like that that is found even among the richest among us. And I would say the United States is kind of case in point in this, where the United States is. I mean, we, we have more wealth than we know what to do with. Uh, we, so even me as a middle-class person here in the United States, I live a life of luxury comparison in comparison to the majority of the world. Yeah. And yet here in the United States where we just have so much abundance, yeah. the rates of depression, anxiety, suicide just far outpace those of countries that have very little compared to what we have. Right. I, I've lately been reading um, a biography of Thomas Jefferson and to see the circumstances that people faced in the late 1700s. I mean, where well, you're talking uh, 50% infant mortality. And and so, I mean, because uh, something like seven of his nine children died in, in infancy and then his wife died uh, in her late 30s, I think. And, and this was, this is common. I mean, hard lives, hard lives, full of just sadness. I mean, brutal sadness. Um, and, and yes, people dealt with, it's not like everybody in that time just healthily handled it. There's a lot of alcohol abuse. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of really bad practices, but we are running into this very strange issue of having wealth having good lives, things like, you know, we, we all know people who have lost a child, and that's very sad, but we, I don't think any of us know somebody who's losing 50% right. of their children, right. which is which is what everybody was facing. Yeah. Not I'm not talking about, you know, the classical period here. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about founding era of this country, and so we should be asking some very basic questions about why are we struggling so much? If we have it this good. Yep. And and the answer is, not that you don't know this, Jackson, but it's worth saying uh, that people are trying to meet these desires, to satisfy these desires, that we have the deepest desires of our heart with earthly things. Yeah. And that's not the way those desires yeah, and, are satisfied. And, and those errors that he is he is pointing to are just so helpful. Because one of the yeah. weird things, um, I, this comes out of reading uh, C.S. Lewis's autobiography, uh, where he grew up and he was reading all these books. And for him, those were fantasy worlds that he loved, that, that were just captivating. He had a very strong imagination. So he would just he'd be reading a book, and it's like he was there. And he would just go from book to book to book to book. And one of the obsessions of his life was really, what is this? 
sense of longing that it hurts to feel it. And so we've talked about joy before and what he means by joy, but it's exactly this. It's that, that there's, there's something out there, that there is a better world that mm-hmm. I was meant for. And if you think then, okay, about, about what he's doing is seeing these better worlds through his imagination in these books. One thing that happened for me and one thing that I had to ask myself, this was an answer to a literal kind of lifelong question because video games are a big deal for me growing up. And video games in a lot of cases are fantasy worlds that you love to be in and that you live in for extended periods of time. But then you're in a chase of going like, well, I got to get the next game because this feeling, I got to chase this feeling. And you have to begin to ask yourself, what am I chasing? And why is it not there in these old games anymore that I used to play? And, and how, am I really going to, is there some game out there that's going to actually provide it? Yeah. Uh, Because we're running into these same kinds of questions, but we're, we're, we're doing it differently in some cases, but we're falling into the same errors. And uh, so that's very helpful what he's saying, because I mean, one of the things he says on there that is a quote that just comes to my mind all the time is either there is pie in the sky or there isn't. This is the bare fact is either there is fulfillment for your deepest desires or there isn't. And yes, that's a hard question to face, but it's worth facing. The Christian hope is the resurrection of the body for you personally Mm -hmm. will come with a judgment where everyone will be judged for every action, every word and deed. And then what we will all see is the reuniting of heaven and earth and the defeat of evil. And that's what you see in the book of Revelation. The final enemy will be defeated. There will be armies on both sides. You've chosen your side. And ultimately, the the remarriage uh, of heaven and earth, the bringing back together of the realm of God and the realm of man, behold, the dwelling of God is with his people. That's what... According to the New Testament, that's what our hearts are longing for. And what we have in the Bible is God saying to you, I will do it. I will do it. But ask yourself where you stand with me right now and where will you stand at the end when all of this comes to fruition, all this comes to a head. Right. Right. And so so we have hope. We can have hope. And understanding what hope is, and that is is the surety that our desires are will be met that that right. are they will be satisfied and we can know that as christians we can have that hope um not just because well i don't want to do it the fool's way nor do i want to give up um right those are those are options like you said either there's pie and there's in the sky or there's not uh one guy says there's not therefore you know, don't even try don't yep. don't give up and, and that i think ultimately will need lead to a sort of nihilism right um or you can say there is pie in the sky, and it can be found here in this world, here today, that's available for me. Now I can be satisfied by the things that this world has to offer. And that's the fool's way that he talks about, and that also doesn't work. The Christian way is to say, yes, there is a pie in the sky, quote-unquote, uh, a satisfaction to my deepest desires and longings, yeah. uh, but it's found in another world. But the question then becomes, well, then how can you hope in it? How can you have a trust in it? The answer is because we've been given a glimpse of that yep. now. We've been given a glimpse of that in Christ Jesus, a, a foretaste, if you will, yep. of what is to come. The yep. Bible talks about Christ being the first fruits of, of a coming resurrection, mm-hmm. of a coming reality. It's true of all of us. And he's given us the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a guarantee right. of these things. And so our hope is not just that, mm, well, maybe. No, we have been given the proof. Right. We've been given the evidence. We've been given a 
a surety, something to hold on to in yeah. Christ Jesus. Yeah. And that, and that sense that you have of God moves from a, no, I'm afraid I can't face him to a, against all, against all odds, he does love me and I am accepted. Yeah. And, and that is the turn that happens in your heart, not because of your merit, but because of another you are accepted and you are loved and it's a change. It's a change in the way uh, it's a new seed and changes the way you view everything. Yep. 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 That's right. That the satisfaction of the world that is to come is already beginning to shine through. Yep. And that's, that's the joy of it. That, that is, you know, you've been reading Chronicles of Narnia with your, uh, mm-hmm. your kiddos, you told me. And um, one of the cool things in that, in that book and, and in the movie is whenever the snow begins to melt, mm-hmm. spring begins to mm-hmm. come. Uh, why? Because Narnia, or because um, Aslan has returned. Right. 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 And and all is beginning to be made right. And you begin to see the glimpses of that uh, even now. And so that's that's where we're at. And that's the reason we have hope. Mm-hmm. So, Well, you know, I don't think that there's any reason to go any further. I think we've covered, uh, uh, covered a good amount here. What do you think? I say let's do it. You want to jump into faith? I, I think we right. could do. I mean, wait, wait, this has been really good. Uh, because I do feel like there's a common theme that we're, we're talking about here that uh, reality and the, the, how, how firm and strong spiritual reality is the fulfillment uh, to your heart. Um, because we, la- I mean, it, it is, what's left is faith. And we're so, yeah. we've, we've sort of touched on it because it's like, okay, so what do you cling to? It's right. like, well, you cling to the things that aren't seen, mm-hmm. but the things that, that your heart is telling you are there because, um, big question, a uh, big question to anybody who has had contact with these kind of other worlds. Well, you, that longing is strong, but then this big question is like, okay, but if joy is there, why is it so hard for us to experience it? And the answer, this is one of the biggest answers that C.S. Lewis provides, not just in this work, but in, in his works as a whole, is he says, well, the reason that you don't feel joy is that all the time is that joy hurts. And when you feel it, it, that longing, the longing to be with people that you love who have gone, the longing for places that, that you haven't been, the longing for the, the desires of your heart that you're for, afraid to even mention, not that they're evil, but because they're, they're deep and they're good and you're afraid that they won't happen, mm-hmm. that you're afraid to admit them, admit that those are there, and you, you also are afraid that, you, that it is all fake, that you're making it up, mm-hmm. um, and it hurts to feel it. Because the longing is so strong, and that's why we—that's why joy is in short supply and can, and gets in shorter supply. Because we're we're sort of embarrassed. That's one of the things that's going on right now. Is I think as we're all all of our our lives are on display on the internet, we're a little embarrassed about these deeper things. Um, meanwhile, uh, the slower pace of life that people used to have in the past, they would go, "Wow!" But what if if all these things are pointing me towards that there might be more? My goodness, what if there is? Mm-hmm. Um, but all these surfacey kinds of things that we're dealing in now really drives us to put on this fake bold front as if, like, oh no, I don't, I don't believe in any of those sort of things. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, I say we do it. What do you say? <laughs> let's, let's get, let's at least get chapter 10 or excuse me, chapter 11. That's the first chapter on faith. It's funny. He has two chapters on faith, um, which if yeah. you, if you aren't reading the book and you just like, open up and look at the table of contents, you'll think, oh, man, it's a typo or something. Uh, but the reason he does that is because there are kind of two ways of talking about faith, mm-hmm. two understandings of faith that he gets into. And we can at least touch on the first one. Uh, and that is that faith is belief. Mm-hmm. And this is 
the most common way of people thinking about faith. Mm-hmm. Even the world will think about faith in this way and actually even use faith and belief, um, the, those words interchangeably. Um, and this is a sort of, um, a sort of re, a faith that is, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Included with reason, a sort mm-hmm. of rationality that comes with it. Oftentimes when we think about faith, sometimes people will think it is opposed to reason. Well, as he's laying out here, no, that's not at all the case. In fact, many people have faith uh, because of how they have reasoned. Right. Um, and you can use this in, in a whole host of different uh, different areas. Um, one simple way is talking about faith as a belief that a chair can hold your weight, right? Right. Um, and you have belief in that because, well, you know how the chair was constructed. You know that it's made of wood. You know that um, wood can hold your weight if it's constructed in an appropriate way. And therefore you can believe that, yeah, that chair is, is perfectly able to hold wood. It's according to reason, right? Right. Um, but then there are times when you see a certain chair and you think, well, I believe that chair could hold weight. Um, but then whenever it's time to actually sit down in it and it kind of wiggles and, and wobbles, uh, your confidence might be shaken a little bit mm-hmm. and your, uh, emotions might even tell you, shoot, maybe I shouldn't sit down in this chair, right? Uh, but that doesn't change the fact that you still have faith that the chair can hold, mm-hmm. right? That's one example uh, of of some that we could talk about. But um, well, go, go ahead. I, I'm just no, that's, hogging uh, the mic here. That's really helpful. I mean, just because there are elements, like when we, we hold to something that we have previously reasoned. Mm -hmm. Uh, We all know that our emotions and our hearts can start trying to convince us of things. Uh, This is coming to me uh, just because uh, of what I'm reading. But like uh, there's a story about uh, Thomas Jefferson. He's in his 40s. And this is after his, his wife had died and he's in France and he meets this woman and he's just really smitten, and he shouldn't have been smitten with this woman, but he's in a park, and he's so excited that he jumps a fence, and he tripped over the fence and hurt his wrist, and it hurt him for the rest of his life. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But we've, we all know this experience of being excited and thinking, like, I'm young again. I can do anything. And then it's like, nope, not only are you not young, but you just injured <laughs> yourself in a way that's going to remind you for the rest of your life of how stupid that was. Uh, and, and, and what a weird thing that it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This reason thing, it's very helpful because though our hearts are necessary to our living, uh, you can't just rely on whatever stray thought might pass through your mind and and especially whatever uh, stray desire uh, or emotion might be passing through uh, Mm -hmm. your your heart at any given moment because those things, they are not reliable. Those things are for a moment and can have lasting consequences uh, that are are not good for you. Right, and so when he talks about faith... here, um, he's saying it's not that it's not that you take reason and cast it out. No, as Christians, we believe that we have a reasonable faith. But you can also have atheists that are using reason uh, to convince themselves yeah. in opposition yeah. of, of the existence of God, right? Um, but as he kind of makes the point here, even like, what does he say? He talks about when he's going to have a surgery. And he can have faith because of reason, because of what he knows and he can understand that the anesthesia that they are putting into him is going to completely put him out and they can operate and he's not going to feel it. But 
with all of that knowledge and that faith based on reason, he still, when he sits down in the on the table, right. is laid out, and they put the, the mask over his face, can have a, a great amount of panic set in because you say, I, I know all of that to be true, but uh, what if they begin cutting before I'm completely out? What if the, uh, the mask fails or... Or what if I don't wake up? Or all these different things can mm-hmm. rush in, and you can still have a great amount of panic, even though you have a a faith uh, that these things work. Um, and the problem that he's laying out really in that is that even with faith, uh, our moods, our mm-hmm. emotions can have a great sway on those things, and even even a desire to do something, you know, can have a sway on our on our faith. And yeah. and he says, I want to read. This is kind of a long quote, but I think it's a good one. Um, he says, now faith in the sense in which I'm using here, the word is an art of holding to things uh, your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change. Whatever your view, what, or, excuse me, whatever view your reason takes. I know that by experience. Now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when... I was an atheist. I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This is rebellion of your moods against against your real self. And it's going to come anyway. He says, that is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, quote unquote, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. So he's saying here, faith and, and the faith in which he's laying it out is something that, that goes beyond and even has a certain amount of, of, of uh, preference given to it even over our emotions and our moods. And everybody does this. Right. If you were purely, like he says, if you were purely driven by your moods and your emotions, you'd be all over the place, right. you know? You would obviously never do anything you didn't want to do. You would be uh, confused all the time about everything um, because that's the way our moods are. They're mm-hmm. kind of all over the place. And so faith means, like you said, telling your emotions how far they go, right. how, where their limit is, and not letting them take over uh, and then begin to rule what you believe and what you, uh, what you hold to. Yeah. And so it's, it's a helpful way of thinking about, um, about faith. But also he makes the point, this is a really good point, and it's a very theological point that he makes about Christ that I've actually, uh, I've seen in other instances and even brought up in a sermon one time, but he talks about uh, fighting with temptation uh, and resisting temptation and doing so because of your faith, right? It's our faith that drives us to resist temptation rather than to, than to just give in, even though our emotions would tell us, hey, just give in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he says, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. Yeah. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would have been like an hour later. Then he goes on. That's a good point, right? We don't really understand the full force of temptation or the force of temptation, unless we're resisting it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he then goes on to say, and this is a good point, and Christ, because he was the only man who who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. Uh, that's a pretty yeah. profound theological point of, and it 
rings true what we read about Christ in the scriptures, that he in every way can relate to us and has been tempted as we are. In fact, he understands the right. force of temptation and the difficulty of it more than any of us because he's the only one that resisted into the right. who has resisted into the end right. and has never given in. He stood against the onslaught. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And and so what you just that that is the second sense in this chapter. That's the trust sense. What are you really relying on? That's what you uh, just pointed to there. Eh, not really. So he gets into faith being trust in chapter twelve. Uh, where he kind of talks about it um, in that sense. But our, we must outline it differently, at least uh, um, because well, he does go on the deeper sense in chapter 12. And I have that, but who knows exactly how we out because I have it here. Is it not in chapter 11 where he says that this quote about uh, bad people do not understand badness, good people understand goodness and badness, uh, realize that we can't contribute to any moral deal with God. We have nothing to offer that he hasn't given us. Yes, that's the same section I was just reading, um, but he doesn't really speak to Jackson. I'm not about to. <laughs> I don't want to like uh, try and argue with you about well, I uh, don't, where. It is. I'm working but, off of my outlines that I've made over the past few years. I mean, I don't yeah. know. He, I, it's impossible to say that he doesn't get into it at all in this chapter, yeah. right? Because he does. He moves on to an understanding of faith that gets past you know any simple worldly understanding of faith like yeah. he does and it's helpful i'm glad that he does right um and because that's what faith is and i think is a better word uh, oftentimes for faith is trust yeah because i think it gets more Your highest trust accurately yeah i think it gets more more to the heart of what it means to be a christian and to have faith it means to trust um, and there was a there was a theologian that spoke it together for the gospel a few years ago it was actually 27 16, um, when they had the sort of celebration of the Reformation, the 500th year of the Reformation. And he, he was making this point that like a lot of times people think of faith simply in terms of believe or, or, um, knowledge. Right. But it's, it's, it's more accurately described as a trust that when we have faith in Christ, it means that we are trusting in Christ. Mm -hmm. Not simply that we believe that he was a person, believe that he died on the cross. That's necessary to trust. What are you operating off of? What are you acting? Why are you behaving in a certain way? What is driving that? Right. And I think that was a really helpful way to think about what faith is in the life of a Christian. It's more than just an assent Mm -hmm. uh, to belief, but it's a trusting in that belief. And I think this is a separator when it comes to believers and unbelievers, even among those who really all look like believers. This is a, a part of what separates the sheep from the goats, is there are plenty of people in our churches that have morally assented or, or right. um, uh, yeah, in knowledge, yeah. right? That they believe that the Bible is true, they believe that Jesus is God, but they aren't actually trusting in that. Yeah, I mean, the entire book of James was given to us to take us from point A, I will assent in this moment to whatever you're wanting me to assent to, to B, like, no, what what good is your faith if it is not accompanied by deeds? It's right. dead. It's dead. That's it exactly does not, right. You know. That's exactly right. It is a it is a faith that is belief only without an actual trust right. uh, that says, as soon as this begins to cost me something, right. I'm out. Yeah, I'm out. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, yeah. I was happy. If it cost me nothing, I was happy to go along with whatever you were saying. But as soon as you're saying I got to stand up to somebody or say something, this is going to make me uncomfortable, forget it. Yep, that's exactly right. And that's, yeah. So that, that helps distinguish between what 
Christians have when it comes to faith and what has been granted to us in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit and what the world is talking about when they say just belief. Mm -hmm. Uh, Belief is part of it. You know, it's not, you have to believe before you can trust, before you can have the faith that we're talking about. But it is not simply belief Mm -hmm. or um, intellectual assent, right? Um, It's more than that. Yeah. Which is good. Yeah, well, I, I can put the cherry on this one because I really think chapter 12, he pushes to this one part and he says, look, here's here's the deeper sense. If you say, after getting some clarity of mind about, well, wait a second, have I really pushed myself? Could I follow God? And he says, you're a different person when you say, I want to give it my all to follow God. And when you find that you gave everything you had and you still fail, then you will really realize who you need to rely on. And it's not you. You need help from somewhere else. And that is real faith in the sense that the Bible is asking you to have, which is you need to stop trusting in yourself and and stop looking for your merits at all because you will fail. Morally, you will not accomplish this. And if you have that experience of saying, I'm going to give everything I've got here for whatever this period of time is, and you fail, you will go, oh, I'm not nearly so good at this as I thought I was. I'm mm-hmm. going to need some outside help. Yep. And, and that's really helpful. I mean, it, it, is, um, yeah. it, is, it is something that, frankly, I think a lot of us don't even think about because, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I love to bring everything I have to bear and then really ask the question, did I fail or did I not? <laughs> that's, right. that's, that's a hard thing, but it also uh, teach you a deep truth about yourself. That's right. And, and I think this is a great quote. It has to be said. This this chapter he really gets at the gospel pretty good he says the sense in which a christian leaves it to god is that he puts all his trust in christ trusts that christ will somehow share with him the per- the perfect human obedience which he carried out from his birth to his crucifixion that christ will make the man more like himself and in a sense make good his deficiencies yeah. uh, that is what it means to have christian faith and to trust uh, yeah. in christ that all that we need will be met in him. Yep. All that we need for this life, but certainly all that we need in order to be justified before a holy God. It's all met in him. Yep. And when you realize he's given you everything and that anything you might give him is nothing more than what he gave you to start with, yep. but that he is, he is pleased nonetheless, that you brought nothing to the table and that God knew that all along and he still accepts you. That is when you have the exact, that is when you have the unshakable faith that, that God wants you to have to go, I, I didn't choose you because of anything in you. And there's nothing you can lose that will make me feel any differently about you either. That's right. That he wants us to get there, but it takes a lot of work mm-hmm. for him to get us there. I was going to say, it takes a lot of work on his part, but you know, <laughs> praise God, praise God. So, yeah. Well, good. This was a lot. Um, but I do feel like there's a thread through it that is so helpful. It's it's a it's a harsh reality. It's a it's a it's a it's a hard thing to realize that um, we don't have uh, everything that we wish we have. We don't have you know any moral goodness in us to offer up. But if it's the truth, then we need to know it. We got to come to grips with it. Yep. And this is the proposal. This is the proposal. This this is the truth about us. That we don't have anything to offer, we don't have anything to bring to the table, but that it's okay. Uh, I heard it phrased one way like this, uh, it's worse than we thought. (laughs) 
but it'll be all right. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to phrase it. That's a good way to phrase it. it. I would add to the end of that, because of Christ. There you go. <laughs> yeah, because go. of Christ. So, well, this has been a great time. Um, really, a lot of, of great things in these few chapters. Happy to get them sort of under the belt. Look forward to moving into book number four. Uh, but in the meantime, this has been Empires of the Future. And we'll see you in the future.